Today on Hardly Working, we're going to do some public policy archaeology. It is a truism that no federal program once created ever goes away. The most famous example of these are federal subsidies for mohair. What is mohair, you might ask? It's a cloth produced from the hair of Angora goats that was once prized for use in production of military uniforms. In 1954, Congress created mohair subsidies as critical to the nation's national defense. When fibers like rayon, polyester, and other synthetics came along, there was no longer need for mohair beyond making nice high-priced sweaters. But the subsidy lived on. In 1995, it appeared that Congress had finally eliminated the program. But in 2014, at the behest of the Angora goat producer lobby, the subsidy was brought back as part of the Farm Bill. The U.S. currently spends about $20 million per year on subsidies for mohair. What's true of mohair goes double for larger, more prominent federal programs like workforce development. These programs came into being as part of the response to the Great Depression and were extended and expanded in the 1960s as part of President Lyndon Johnson's Great Society initiatives. Over the decades, federal workforce programs have slowly morphed and shifted. Congresses and presidents of both parties have sustained them in the hope of finding solutions to problems of chronic unemployment among low-income Americans and in boosting the supply of critical skills in fields like healthcare and advanced manufacturing. The result is a confusing, often redundant, badly outdated alphabet super programs that the Government Accountability Office says shows little evidence of effectiveness. Workforce programs sometimes look like mohair subsidies, but with a hard hat. Our guest today is AEI Adjunct Fellow Mason Bishop, a leading conservative voice on the need for reform of federal workforce development spending. He recently published a landscape study that provides an overview into the problems and the promise of federally funded workforce development programs. Mason served in the George W. Bush administration as the principal deputy assistant secretary of the Employment and Training Administration and as a leading authority on community colleges and the workforce system. Mason Bishop, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Hi, thanks, Brent. Great having you, Mason, a colleague of longstanding, somebody I've worked with for many years on workforce development and related issues, and really one of the most knowledgeable people in the country, I think, about workforce development programs and how they work or don't work. And we're here today, you know, to talk about this report that you just published, Mason, as an adjunct scholar here at AEI on the state of the nation as it relates to workforce development and our federally funded programs. So I wonder if you could start just by giving us an overview of the report. What was your goal in writing it? And then tell us how it's organized, and then we'll get into the content of it. Well, Brent, first, thank you so much. You and I have known each other for about 20 years now, and I've always appreciated the work we've been able to do together. And I also want to thank AEI for giving me this opportunity to publish reports around workforce development issues because we see that it's a very critical issue of the day, people having the skills and ability to participate in today's great economy. I'm just really appreciative of AEI's interest in these topics and giving me the opportunity to write about them. So this report in particular was really an overview report of the, I guess you could say in a general sense, the public workforce system, that term's used rather generally, and really looking to try to develop an understanding of where we are today in terms of both the design and number of programs that are targeted to helping people with jobs and with obtaining the skills they need for today's jobs, as well as also outlining the amount of funding that actually goes toward this effort. 
I think in both cases, there are a number of programs throughout multiple federal agencies that are targeting employment and job training, both to help employers find the workers they need and to help workers obtain the skills they need for employment. And also that we are spending billions of dollars on these programs, again, across a number of federal agencies. And I'm not sure always that public policymakers and the public understand exactly what the commitment is to these programs. It is substantial, yet it's also very fragmented. And over the history of these programs have remained somewhat fragmented, although there have been recent opportunities and attempts to try to present opportunities for more coordination and even in some cases consolidation of programs. But that's really was the goal of trying to write this paper. In terms of its organization, we look at the history of programs, especially starting in the 1960s. And that's important to understand that so many of the programs we have today that are targeted to workers really evolved from either the New Deal era of the 1930s or the Great Society era of the 1960s, and in large measure really haven't changed a whole lot, unfortunately. While our economy has advanced rapidly, and especially in terms of technology, the way we help workers deal with this new technology and gain the skills has not evolved. So we look at that history and that le- those legacy programs. We do discuss how they've recently changed, especially with the Workforce Investment Act in 1998 and the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act of 2014-2015, and also then talk about some of the specific policies that are contained within these programs. And then we turn our attention to three state examples, Utah, Kentucky, and Virginia, and demonstrate really the spectrum from a highly integrated workforce system in Utah to a very splintered system in Virginia, and then look at Kentucky, who's trying to become more integrated and less splintered and and some of their recent attempts over the last couple of years. And then we conclude the paper with some recommendations. And also, it's important to mention that we will have some follow-up case studies that we're working on right now that will dig a little deeper into some of the issues we raise in the landscape study. That's terrific. Great overview. I want to ask another kind of big picture question, Mason, which is in light of what you learned in researching and writing this report and all of the other knowledge that you have developed in this field over the years, what would you see? And I know this is a hard question, but what do you see as the biggest problems currently facing the public workforce system as it's currently constituted? Well, I think there's a couple of major issues. I think one that I've mentioned already is that so many of the programs are built on a legacy of the New Deal or Great Society. What marks something as distinctively being a New Deal or Great Society? So, yeah, an example, a couple of examples in terms of the New Deal are the unemployment insurance program and then another program called the Wagner Pizer Employment Service Program. And the employment service was created in conjunction with the unemployment insurance program back in the 1930s to help people who were laid off or unemployed for an extended period of time with job search assistance and those type of services. And so those programs passed around 1935 and still exist today. And then in parallel to those exists the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act programs, which there are three 
specific programs that are funded, one toward low-income adults, one toward dislocated workers, and one toward disadvantaged youth. Many of the services in the WIOA programs are the exact same type of services. They call them career services in WIOA, and they call them employment services in Wagner-Pizer. And so those, all those services continue to exist in separate silos. And so those would be examples of programs in the WIOA programs. If you read the paper, the evolution of those started in the 1960s with Manpower Demonstration Training Act, which evolved into the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, or CEDA as it was known. Then in 1982, we had the Job Training Partnership Act. In 1998, the Workforce Investment Act. And so you can see the alphabet soup of programs going back to the 1960s that now exist as the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act today. It's kind of like the layers of sediment. The water washes stuff in, it gets left there. Some of it goes back, but a lot of it stays, and then the next wave comes, and it kind of builds up over time. Now, not all of that's bad. Like, we wouldn't want to be without a unemployment insurance program. We definitely need the labor market information services, but it's just a question of whether they're actually, like, aligned to or correspond to the reality that we currently face. Correct. And, and unemployment insurance is actually an interesting example. I can give a specific example. If you lose your job, you have to be in what's called covered employment. That means that the employer has been paying unemployment insurance taxes to his or her state as well as to the federal government. The federal government funds the administrative costs and the states fund the benefit costs. So right there you can see some splinterization. But more importantly, as our economy has evolved and you have people who are, say, freelance workers or 1099 type of employees, often they're not, quote unquote, in covered employment. So if I'm a business owner and I'm filing my taxes as an independent sole practitioner, and I then run into a situation where my business isn't doing as well, or I may have to close up shop and search for regular W-2 employment, as an example, I'm not covered under the unemployment insurance program, so I don't get any unemployment insurance benefits. So you can see as our economy has evolved, unemployment insurance is just one example of a program that really hasn't evolved with the changing nature right. of work in the United States. So we have this growing thing we call the gig economy in which people aren't regular employees. They're working very hard. They're earning the money to care for themselves and their family. And, and if they, for some reason, are unable to do that gig work anymore, they get nothing. Correct. Out of an unemployment insurance. That would be correct. And, you know, Brent, you touched on really the answer to the original question, which is the range of problems. When, when I was working for Governor Mike Levitt back in Utah in the 1990s, he used to say that the workforce system was like spaghetti code. If you remember, they used to talk about spaghetti code where you would have a, a computer program and instead of changing the entire computer program. If there was a fix that needed, you layered code on top of it, and then you layered code on top of that. And then over time, you had this original computer program that was all this confusing mass of code that had been layered on top of it. You used the example of sediment. And I still think that's one of the major problems we have today. It's not that anybody has been had had bad intentions, so to speak, but as we have run into a particular labor market problem, say there's a particular group of workers impacted by trade, for instance, foreign trade, we create a program called trade adjustment assistance. If we have another group of workers, say, 
Hispanic, English as a second language, we create another program. And so we layer this spaghetti code of programs on top of one another and never then look back and say, wait a minute, we've got a morass of confusing layered programs that make it all nearly impossible to manage at the state and local levels. And instead of at the congressional level saying, look, we got to just really make changes here and be bold and do bold reforms, we just continue to layer and tinker. But the also that's paired with the other problem, in my opinion, which is that often, and I think the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act is an example of this. I think, unfortunately, like many things in Washington, D.C., when it comes time to reauthorize or reform a program, all the different interest groups who build up around these sort of spaghetti code of programs all come to the table and say, well, don't, we don't want our program at risk. Don't change our program. Change these other ones. And so you end up with a whole bunch of people who show up around the table if you're a congressional staffer of a committee who are all saying, don't change my program, change this other thing. And so, you know, you end up legislating to the interest groups versus legislating to what's right, to the workers and the employers. And unfortunately, you know, right now, the kind of the way our system works is the worker who's out there doing the nine to five thing or that's unemployed and needs skills isn't really represented in that kind of scheme. So that's, I think, the other major problem to this is that there are very, very few voices of rationality. And so to be honest, Brent, one of the real points of this paper is to kind of be a little bit blunt and bold and say, you know, there's some irrationality to what's going on here. The Government Accountability Office and and others have been documenting this over a period of time. Things really aren't largely changing. And yet, you know, our employers and our workers, we see it on the news every day, need these programs to work better. It's really what we're trying to do here with some of this. I think it's uh, such such an important point. You know, one of the ironies of our current situation is that it's hard to get people to focus on workforce in the context of a 3.5 or 3.6% unemployment rate. Everybody's got a job. Why should we worry about that? In fact, the pressure on the system actually grows as the labor market tightens. Employers are looking for skilled workers and can't find them. One of the reasons that you and I and AEI are focused on this issue is that this is really such a important moment in the history of the country to have this kind of low unemployment. And it's excruciating to know that there are people out there who could be taking advantage of this, but haven't quite figured out how to navigate their way through this morass of federal and state programs. That well, really, can I add another yeah. complexity to it, yeah. Brent, which is why I think the morass of programs needs to be fixed is because I've been doing some recent research, and I know you're involved in this as well. This is becoming top of mind for me right now. In this low unemployment economy, if you start looking at census data and poverty data and some other things, there's some really interesting dynamics that are popping up. You can take almost any county in the United States right now, and within that county are zip codes that are very wealthy and have low levels of of poverty and unemployment, and literally right next to it, contiguous to that zip code, could be a zip code with 30% poverty. I, for instance, did some research down in Palm Beach County in Florida. And as you know, along the coast there is about as much wealth as anywhere in the United States. But if you go out to the west end of the county, the Bell Glades area, where the old sugarcane fields are, and there's still a lot of sugarcane fields out there. I was just there a week or so ago. 
you have 30% poverty. Generations of families who have never gone to college or obtained post-secondary credentials or anything. So you see that in a number of places right now that I've started looking that we have to have policies that recognize and are flexible that we have a low unemployment rate, we need as many workers as possible, and some of those workers exist in these pockets of poverty, I'll call them. I mean, the Trump administration's been talking about opportunity zones, which is tied to this same issue, which is that we've got to be have a workforce system that can adapt to a low unemployment economy that also has these pockets of poverty islands of poverty within within their geographic area and and how do you how do you reach into those upskill those individuals help them get education skills credentials and get them connected and networked to employers and that that's a big role the workforce system can and should play but i'm not really sure it's structured really well to be able to do that right now and let's just spend a minute or two talking about this relationship between the public workforce system and what we think of more commonly as kind of welfare programming, programs that are tied at or targeted, I should say, at the long-term unemployed or people who have been on uh, temporary assistance for needy families, the TANF program, or people who have disabilities that are trying to get into the workforce. Those are the people that tend to sort of cluster in those high poverty areas. What I've observed, you know, in my work on this is that many times these systems don't communicate well with one another. They don't handle these populations in the same way. They present their own kind of barriers to success in the way they measure outcomes and so on. So why don't you just talk a little bit about sort of that low income nexus because that's, of course, where a lot of the untapped labor currently is. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really true, especially right now in today's current economy. So as you know, Brent, this is an issue near and dear to my heart because when I first was getting started in my professional career in Utah, I was actually working for the office, what was at the time the Office of Family Support in 1994-1995. And when Governor Levitt in about 1994 started talking about workforce development reform in Utah, unlike what you see in, in a lot of places where people are saying, oh, he doesn't look at us to, to participate, there was a group of us that actually said, you know, if we're going to have true workforce development reform here in Utah, we should be part of that. And so there was a group of us that actually got together, met, did some research and such, and actually developed a policy paper that we provided to the governor's office saying, you know, the Office of Family, anything you do with workforce development should include the Office of Family Support. In welfare reform, our philosophy was that there's one way out of poverty, and that's you've got to increase your earnings. You've got to increase family income is actually what we'd say. And there really was two ways to do that. One is if you're a single mom with kids, you either got to get a job and or you've got to work with the non-custodial parent to get, you know, your child support that you're owed. So that idea of helping single parents with children in the 1990s was really a key philosophical underpinning to the development of the Department of Workforce Services. And so, as you know, in 1996 and 1997, we did merge the Office of Family Support along with what was the Office of Job Training and the Employment Service Commission, which was the Unemployment Insurance and wagner Pizer Employment Service Department into one comprehensive agency. And those TANF programs, what became TANF, 
then became a very critical work program within the Department of Workforce Services. And we we always treated it that way, that obviously it had a cash benefit attached to it, but it really was important that for people's long-term sustainability as a family, getting good jobs was important. It was at the core of how people get out of poverty. Mm -hmm. And so, as you know, then that became a real important philosophical underpinning of my own personal work in this area and belief. And so coming from that perspective, one of the things that I think is really kind of a shame, to be honest, is that we are now here at 2020. And one of the things I should mention with this AEI landscape study is we put in a lot of work on what we call our state infographics that are on the website, where you can go and click on a state and you can see what state agencies are involved in the workforce system. We looked at the TANF program. We looked at vocational rehabilitation, adult education literacy, and as well as the WIOA programs. And you can see how integrated those services are and whether people have to walk into two or three or four offices. And unfortunately, in too many states still, if I'm a single parent with children, I walk in one door. If I'm a person who's not eligible for welfare or I want some employment help, I walk through a whole separate door. And we still have too many states who are walking through two, three, four doors instead of one. That continues to be a problem. And it starts at the federal level with, again, the continual creation of programs through multiple federal agencies that go down to the states into multiple state agencies and then ultimately work their way down at the state and local level into separate offices in towns. I've been in many towns where I walk in one door, which is considered the one-stop system under WIOA. You go a couple miles up the road and there's the welfare office that you apply for food stamps or for cash benefits. And you go a couple more miles in the other direction. And if I'm a disabled individual, I walk through another door for vocational rehabilitation services and none of the three are, you know, dealing. And that's just not good customer service. And then you look at employers who we ask to you know, hire individuals with disabilities. We ask them to look at hiring the, the low income and the people on welfare. We ask them to hire individuals who are dislocated. And you know, we're hitting them up five different ways in a community. And it's not fair to the employer and it's not fair to the people who need the work. So it's so true. It I mean, I plague the system, I think. You know, when you think about what the experience of the system is from the standpoint of people who try to use it, whether they're employers or individuals, it's exhausting because of all of the it's not transparent. We can't really, you know, describe in an effective way what the right entry point is based on who you are. I think especially of the single mom with the kids and all the responsibility that that person has in their lives. And we tell them that in addition to all of that, they need to work even harder in order to get access to the services that we're telling them they have to have or we're going to cut off their benefits. It feels very Kafkaesque to me, an experience that would be really draining and debilitating and so counterproductive. The exact opposite of what we're trying to achieve, actually, which is not to punish people who find themselves in those circumstances, but enable them to get out. Well, and we really haven't even talked about community colleges, which are part of this puzzle, too, who are also, frankly, many have their own career service function 
or they're working with employers to do contract training or incumbent worker training or other kinds of things. And so there's another whole entity that is also in a community that is doing very similar work and is has a mission statement to improve the workforce. So yeah, we ask a lot of different people to perform similar functions, and it just depends on what seat and what office you're sitting in. And again, if you like it from the employer business perspective, it gets to a point where you either engage with one of those entities, and that becomes sort of your favorite son or daughter to the detriment of the others, or you just disengage altogether and say, this is more than I can deal with. I think often what happens is an employer may have a relationship, say, with their local community college and then don't really engage with the workforce system, or they may sit on the local workforce board and don't get real involved in the other stuff. So in particular for employers, when you look at business engagement activities and trying to work with them to understand what are the skills and competencies they need, what are the credentials they're looking for when they hire people, we're asking a lot out of them when we have four or five or six different agencies and organizations in a community hitting them up for the exact same thing. And they're like, after you do that for a while as a business person or, you know, sometimes as a citizen, it's like, I'm not getting anything out of this. Why should I bother? Because all it's doing is creating a drain on my time and energy, and I don't really get anything out of it. Let's segue to the question of kind of what you found in looking at Virginia, Kentucky, and Utah. And I'd like you to take them in that order. What were the main, the distinctive features of each one of those? And I really want, when you get to Utah, I'm going to slow us way down and really go in depth on that because I personally find it so interesting. So talk about Virginia, talk about Kentucky, and then we'll talk about Utah. Well, again, to me, Virginia is an example of a state with a legacy of continued almost infighting, to be honest. I've done some work here in Virginia with some of their public workforce policies and other things. And the distinct feature, especially in Virginia, is that in most states, I would say that that Wagner-Pizer Employment Service program that, that I mentioned earlier, along with the WIOA programs, are managed at least at the state level by the same state agency. In Virginia, that's not the case. So those core programs, which all come out of the U.S. Department of Labor, so it would make sense for the U.S. Department of Labor to pass those that funding down to, say, a state Department of Labor, In the case of Virginia, they have the Virginia Employment Commission, which administers the unemployment insurance and the employment service program. And then the Virginia Community College System administers the WIOA program and the one-stop system. So right there, you have potential finger pointing and things when, when those sort of basic programs don't operate correctly. For instance, I've seen a case where the public online job system has some issues and the VCCS will say, well, that's the VECs because that's the main funding for that and responsibility comes out of the Wagner-Pizer program. And the VEC says, no, that's really a VCCS problem because they manage the one-stop system. So just within that, you have a very splintered, fragmented situation. Then when you layer on top of that, the adult education literacy program, which again, is sort of separately administered through the State Department of Education. 
the Vocational Rehabilitation Program, which is administered by another separate agency, the Virginia Department for Aging and Rehabilitative Services. And then we've talked about TANF, which comes down through another state agency, the Virginia Department of Social Services. You literally have in the state of Virginia five separate state agencies administering these programs. And then as that works its way down into communities, again, as I mentioned earlier, you have multiple office locations where if you're on TANF, you're getting served by a whole different set of people than if you were a dislocated worker. Just to be clear about this, because I think it really, it'll wind up being very relevant when we get to the Utah experience, which is the other end of the spectrum. But you've got five different programs. You've got five different staff agencies, basically, of people who are administering and overseeing them. You've got five, typically, or often anyway, five different locations in a given community which means maintaining separate infrastructure, separate IT systems, separate, really separate everything. All of that is enormously costly. That's not a trivial expenditure. No, it's not. And again, I can tell you, having come from the Utah experience, that where you save money really is the fact that you know, you always will need your sort of frontline workers and, and case managers and employment counselors and that sort of thing and, and services. You don't really find savings there. Where you find your savings is, I don't need five different administrators or four different administrators. I don't need five different regional managers, you know, as you mentioned, buildings. Perhaps, why aren't we all in one or two buildings instead of three or four buildings, things like that? If you're not wasting that money in unnecessary categories, unnecessary duplication, that frees up resources that could then be pushed into those frontline staff that actually help people on a, on a daily basis. So there's a, there's a real world cost to this. It's not just a theoretical exercise. We, we have, in many cases, and certainly in Virginia, chosen a system that's having a real effect on our ability to help people who are in need. This is hard to measure too, but the quantification of the amount of time and effort it takes just on a daily basis to sort of herd the cats is enormous too. If you're the local director of the workforce board in an area here in Virginia, and your job is to work with all these different programs to come up with, say, cost allocation and how are we going to all work together in sort of this one-stop system way. And I have to deal with additional people and additional programs and additional sandboxes. We point this out in the paper, but literally one of the big problems with this type of scenario is all it takes is one program manager of one of these silos to say, you know, I really don't want to be involved in, in the one-stop system. And there's not a whole lot that a local workforce development director can do about it. They're funded under WIOA. They're supposed to, you know, round up all these other programs and figure out some rational service delivery strategy. And it's an almost impossible task. And the time and effort it takes to try to bring it all together is, I think, enormous. It's hard to quantify it, but it's extremely inefficient at yeah. a minimum. Yeah. And it would be very frustrating to be one of those directors trying to do all of that. Let's move to Kentucky. Kentucky is kind of like in process, right? It's, they are. It's, yeah. it's in a transition from one state of being, I should say, to another state of being in the way that it operates. So talk a little bit about kind of the process that Kentucky is in. 
Well, I think one thing to Kentucky's credit they did is they've sort of been honest and transparent with themselves and with the public. One of the things we point out in the landscape study is they issued two reports. One was a 2015 report from the Kentucky State Chamber of Commerce. And then they also then their state workforce board put out a second report called Kentucky Work Ready, an urgent call to action. And it's really an interesting report because it's, I thought, a very honest assessment of their weaknesses. They really looked at, you know, we're not performing well in some of these areas. We are going to need more skilled workers. But again, we have perhaps too much duplication. We need more efficient resource alignment and be able to reach into, find individuals who need more skills and that sort of thing. And so those sort of assessments of their own state of play back in 2015, 2016, 2017 timeframe, I think really set them up well for establishing realistic goals and realistic action plans around what they wanted to try to do. So again, at the state level, one of the things they've done is, in my opinion, they have kind of this unique governance in Kentucky where they create these cabinets of, instead of having state agencies, they have cabinets of state agencies. And so under their education and workforce development cabinet, they have the WIOA programs, the employment service, adult education, vocational rehabilitation. That's all within sort of a single administering entity. The TANF program is in the Kentucky Cabinet for Health and Family Services, so that remains a little bit independent, but they have worked more toward kind of a consolidated model at the state level. They still have 10 workforce areas and push dollars down, in some cases locally. Others are administered by state employees, but the other major innovation that I really was interested in when I examined Kentucky were these what they call local workforce area dashboards, and we present one example of one in the report. Basically, you can look at these 10 workforce areas, and they are trying to create these dashboards where anybody in the public can go and see what the data looks like. How many job openings do they have? What is the system doing? What is the performance of the workforce development system in that local area? And so I think Kentucky really, transparency was really one of their guiding principles, and I think they're really working toward that where They've set ambitious goals for improvements in their workforce system, and then they're trying to be transparent to employers, job seekers, and the public at large around how well they're doing in certain areas. So to their credit, I think they've been quite bold and kind of put themselves out there to say, we need improvements and we're going to do so. And again, because the state chambers involved, they really are getting, I think, good employer representation in their efforts and getting buy-in. Kentucky also has a couple of workforce models that are really well-known. One is the Kentucky Fame model, which is grounded through the Toyota Corporation. And Fame is a program that's becoming more and more known because it's driven by employers and sort of creates efficiencies in, in skills training and employment. And it's, again, business-driven. It's a business-driven, not a a government-driven type of initiative and effort. So, again, I think Kentucky really is making really important strides in terms of its transparency, and it's trying to bring programs together in a less siloed fashion in terms of their delivery. That bringing together and keeping together is, I hate to break the news to everybody, but that's a process that's never actually done. That's correct. That's just something that states either choose to work on continuously 
or not to work on them at all. And you never arrive at the destination. You're always just trying to keep moving to pull programs and administrative mechanisms and resources together to ensure the greatest efficiency that you can. That is actually the Utah experience. You gave us a little bit of the background already on Utah, but go ahead and kind of walk us through how Utah is currently configured and then maybe a little bit on what it took to get to that point. And you know, I'm just personally fascinated with this and it's very wonky and it's unless you're into the mechanics of government, it may not sound all that important, but it is important the way that Utah relates to the federal government in yeah, terms of managing its programs. So again, when I was involved was at the initial onset and creation of the department. And I think, again, the main innovation there was that welfare and welfare reform was a key part of creating a consolidated department. And really, I think it was at the forefront back in the 1990s of workforce development because, again, through the identification and through a year-long sort of study process, decisions were made. I would say really the lesson learned for me in that initial Utah experience was that governors matter. If Governor Levitt hadn't been willing to use some political capital to really push this effort, it never would have gotten off the ground. At the time, Lieutenant Governor Olean Walker was very instrumental in, in helping negotiate as well. But you know, Governor Levitt, his willingness to, frankly, at times, maybe even take on the county commissioners who politically were trying to vie to keep charge of some of these programs and other things was really important. So a couple of major important parts of the Utah system. One is under the federal, what was the Workforce Investment Act, now the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act, states are forced essentially to create what are called these local workforce areas. And the dollars in WIOA for adults, dislocated workers, and youth are largely pushed down locally to these local areas. That's in contrast to most of the other programs like vocational rehabilitation, TANF, even unemployment insurance and the employment service, which are all administered at the state level. So that's one thing that we point out in the paper that just continues to not make any sense, I don't think, is this sort of bifurcation between some locally driven programs and some state driven programs. In Utah, they eliminated all that in the 1990s. Utah is what's called a single state area, which means that their local input, their local delivery is a function of state government and state law and, and rules versus federal law and rules. So that's an important component for a couple of reasons. One is, again, it's less layers of government creating problems, so to speak. And secondly, and more importantly, is it gives Utah the ability to shift money around more easily to parts of the state that might need it for a crisis, for, hey, there may be a part of the state that's facing more unemployment or has an employer moving in who part of the bargain was that they would get access to, to some training and trained workers. Utah has complete and total flexibility at the state level to, to move those dollars around and to make those kind of decisions versus a state that has local areas where each of those local areas are entitled to a certain level of formula dollars. And there's a whole federal rule-based process for how do you pull money out of one local area and give it to, the, to another. And it's almost laden with rules that it's impossible to do. It's really interesting 
conundrum for conservatives, right? Because we believe in decentralization, decision making at the lowest possible level where it, you know, it still makes sense. And so we want to believe that that devolution of responsibility and power and resources is always the way to go. I don't know what you think, but I think Utah demonstrates that that may not always be the case, that the efficiencies that you can gain, especially in a state that's relatively small population, but there's there's an opportunity for some efficiencies there that can be gained through centralization, which is a little bit counterintuitive from where we usually are. Yeah, although I would argue this, Brent, this has always been interesting. People will say to me, oh, well, you know, job training is a local function, employment's a local function. And I would argue, I've always, my counter to that, and also that Utah's a small state, and we can't do it in a larger state. But to me, the governance principles, it doesn't matter the size of state or the, or the dynamics of the state, because I would argue that it doesn't matter if your paycheck comes from the state government versus a county. If you're sitting in Moab, Utah, or Kanab, Utah, or some rural community in particular, you see yourself as a local person. You don't see yourself as, oh, I'm a state person. No, you see yourself as a member of that local community and that you're representing the input you get from employers and others in that local community. So even though Utah's employees are all state employees, I always have argued and will always continue to argue that really Utah is a localized system. Because the people who are working in those local employment centers in Utah see themselves as local community members, not as, hey, I'm a state employee and represent Salt Lake City, Utah, the state capital. The other thing Utah did was they do in state law have what are called local advisory boards. And so they do have really these that sort of local input process. And one of the things we point out in the paper is Unlike states with local workforce areas where the local boards really only have say in those WIOA programs, in Utah, their state legislated local advisory boards actually have input into the entire Utah Department of Workforce Services portfolio. They actually do oversee locally what goes on in the TANF program, what happens with subsidized child care, what happens with Medicaid eligibility, what happens with dislocated workers. So I actually argue that the Utah model is a very locally based model, and it actually empowers people locally, including local business people who are, who are helping through these advisory boards. It empowers them to actually be able to give input into the entire workforce services profile of portfolio of programs versus a very small subset of those programs which operate in a local workforce area under WIOA. That makes sense. Yeah, it does it does make sense. That's a really helpful clarification. I mean it seems like this formulation that Utah has found is sort of a, a hybrid of some of the advantages you get from a higher level look at all the needs within the state that you get from the state government perspective with a lot of influence by local entities. And I think that it's just a very interesting case study, which is why we are doing a separate case study, you know, just on that experience. So, well, And let me mention yeah. the thing about Utah, yeah. too. The second part of this is I've only talked about the start. I think the fascinating thing to me about Utah is, you know, I only I left and came back to D.C. in about 1999. But the interesting thing, if you look at the the next 20 years through through this year is they haven't just kind of sat on their initial portfolio 
they've evolved and grown over time to include Medicaid eligibility. So if I'm an individual in Utah and I need assistance, I literally walk through one door to get employment services, to get job training assistance, to get if I want to apply for Medicaid, if I'm low income and need a set of different services, if I'm homeless, I go to the Utah Department of Workforce Services. They have a lot of the homeless programs now, they measure. And starting about four years ago, the vocational rehabilitation program is there. And one of the interesting things we learned through this exercise was that the justification for moving voc rehab into the Department of Workforce Services, it was in the Utah Department of Education and it got moved was because 70% of the vocational rehabilitation clients were being served by the Department of Workforce Services. So when you start to really look again, it gets kind of back to that data issue and, and the dashboards that Kentucky's trying to do, for instance. When we start looking at the data, a lot of times these people overlap amongst these different programs. They're eligible for multiple programs. And so we are literally asking people in a lot of places to go through two and three doors to get the array of services versus the one door they have to go through in Utah. I don't know if you remember the story from the Uber driver who picked me up at the airport in Salt Lake City, but it's really illustrative of this point. You know, you can learn the most amazing things talking to Uber drivers. And, Absolutely. And, you know, I was just like, you know, he started talking to me and I was like, normally I just want a quiet Uber ride, but I engaged him, you know, and I said, I'm here for a meeting, and I couldn't get Department of Workforce Services out of my mouth. I was just like, it's with a, you know, the agency that organizes the workforce stuff. I says, yeah, Department of Workforce Services. He knew exactly what it was. And I said, well, that's interesting. How do you know about this? And he described his experience of moving from Louisiana up to Utah because he was in such trouble in his life that he couldn't get the help that he needed in Louisiana. And his brother encouraged him to move to Utah. And so he moved to Utah and he found this Department of Workforce Services. And all of a sudden, you know, he walks into a, an agency in which every single thing that he needed in order to begin his recovery from substance abuse and establish his own business and, you know, get a job and all of those things, it was all in one place. So it was just a really interesting example of like, it's a random sample of one, right? So it's one person. But it's pretty amazing that the one person who picked me up could immediately go to that experience of, yes. of encountering this kind of integrated workforce human services system, which is... Well, I think another kind of important part, and we touch on this a little bit in our landscape paper, is that obviously NDWS had a positive brand in that gentleman's mind, yeah. whereas in so many places... There's no brand at all or understanding, and sometimes even maybe a negative brand, sometimes a positive brand. But unfortunately, when you have these splintered programs, too, there's sort of no positive brand that people can rally around on the government side to market the services and, and programs that they do have available to help people. So I can imagine in my mind's eye a state administrator from another state hearing this and just kind of shaking their head and saying, this could never work here. You know, we could never get the kind of cooperation that we need from the federal government in order to bring about this kind of integration and cooperation. But Utah did. And as you pointed out, governors really matter. State legislators matter in this regard. But talk a little bit about how Utah manages this in its relationship with the federal government, which I think is, again, kind of wonky, but 
really important in terms of getting this kind of flexibility. The real key, and this is where the financial integration piece comes in in Utah, which is, again, back in 1996 and 1997, Utah was able to work with the three primary federal agencies that had oversight over the initial portfolio programs, which was the U.S. Department of Labor, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and U.S. Department of Agriculture, because they administer the food stamps program. And they were able to get those three agencies to agree on a cost allocation plan where Utah has what's called random moment time sampling, where they literally each day, they have a third-party vendor who surveys a point in time with employment counselor or eligibility person, somebody who's employed by the Department of Workforce Services. And that's how they figure out what the person is working on and what program to bill that time against. Right. So the random sampling is stop what you're doing right now and tell us what you're working on. That's correct. And so the employee goes in. It doesn't happen every day to every employee, but there's a sample of employees that that data is collected. And basically, the way I think of it is they work out a bill for the federal government. That's correct. It's like billable time. Billable time. <laughs> yeah. Like a consultant. Yeah. And they send all of that stuff to HHS. That's right. So... That cost allocation plan is overseen by one federal agency, the Department of Health and Human Services. So they're not reporting to multiple federal agencies. And then one thing the Utah officials made clear that I thought was really interesting, I think you did too, was that their liaison at HHS deals with all the other federal agencies. They never have to deal with it. So if, say, the Department of Labor has a question or an issue, they deal with the health and human services person. The health and human services liaison is the only one who's communicating back to Utah. And so it makes it so much easier for the right. Utah officials because they don't have six different masters. They have one, so to speak. And, and I could see, even in Utah, the sort of fatigue on the faces of the workers talking about it's still not an easy thing, right? It's not an easy thing to go through this process of, you know, working with HHS and making sure that they're satisfied that Utah is in compliance with all the rules and so forth. But it's one heck of a lot less draining and less resource intensive for Utah to work with one agency than five. It ultimately saves a lot of time and effort for everybody. It makes so much sense that that's the only reason that it hasn't been adopted everywhere is that it just makes too much sense. But I'm hoping that you and I can, you know, have the opportunity to maybe encourage some other states and the federal government to really look at that experience because I think it it could be of such great benefit. Mason, this has been great. Congratulations on the report. It's really wonderful. Anybody who's listening, again, you can go on our website. It's AEI.org backslash employment dash and dash job dash training dash reform, which isn't a great link to try to listen to me say. So why don't you just go on either the show notes for this program or onto our website and just Google for the landscape study and you'll find it. Again, congrats, Mason. This has been a really wonderful project. It's been very well received on Capitol Hill and with the administration. I think we're on our way to maybe putting a dent in some of these problems. So thanks again for joining us and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.